This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hi, darling. Hello, hello. Well, as you all know, we already do our check-in before we start a recording. But for the sake of our listeners, how are you, Keegan? I'm doing pretty well. It is funny. It's like we have our whole check-in and then we always start this episode by being like, how are you? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah for the sake of... Because we have to let everybody else in a little bit. You know? For sure. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well, pretty well. Still got some, you know, um, phantom high anxiety situations happening, but right. otherwise doing pretty good. How about you? Yeah, you know, I've been the same way. I've been the same way since this whole quarantine started. That hasn't changed. I think I've just changed my attitude surrounding it. I'm like, you know what? I might have a panic attack every day now. It's just, it is what it is. <laughs> but um, I've been doing pretty good. I've been um, like binging Pose in between oh, research so and work this week. And um, I just finished season one, just finished se- uh, episode one of season two. And I'm like living for season two already. I'm so excited. So uh that's why I was like, fuck, I have to go now. Darn it. I want to watch another episode. But it's you fun. know um, what Anthony and I have been doing at nighttime? And actually, we're kind of bummed out because we've run out of episodes. We might actually what? have to like buy it. I feel like such an old lady. But like every night for the last month or so, we've been watching Jeopardy. <laughs> no, I've been watching Jeopardy almost every night at work since I've started. So it's been like over it's been almost two and a half years where every single night their family watches Jeopardy at seven and I would always be like cleaning up the dishes or you know finishing up dinner or doing something where we'd all be in the kitchen together and watch Jeopardy and the parents are so good at it and my competitive yeah but if I get like three questions in a row right like forget about it like my ego gets so huge like I'm like I'm a genius like on occasion I've gotten questions right when none of the contestants Me got it right. And too. I'm like, oh, it's always I'm so like, smart. It's always like musical theater references yep. or like just theater references in general or. Yep. It's just it's always like nerdy stuff like that. But I love it. It's cool because like especially with their family, I feel like they all have like their niches. Like even like little T has his niche with Jeopardy. And he's really funny because he'll he'll say the answer the same time as one of us and we get it right. And he'll be like, yeah, 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 totally. I knew that. Yeah, yeah. Good job. But anything to do, which is funny as love for Hamilton, anything to do with the Revolutionary War He'll get it immediately. It's crazy. Adorable. Love it. Pretty. Okay, well, I'm glad I'm not alone in my love for Jeopardy. It feels like a very old person thing to like. No. Have I mentioned on the show that I've been watching Star Trek going to bed? No, but I'm here for it. Yeah, it's a great... I don't watch Star Trek really. I actually just... The first time I've ever 
truly consumed anything Star Trek other than just in the background of my home uh, was I just watched the movie with like Chris Pine and mm-hmm. everyone. I can't remember who else was in it, but it was really good. But like the noises and Picard's voice is just the next generation. Is oh, the best so you're thing watching next generation. Too. Yeah. Next generation is the best. It is to me, my favorite Star Trek. It's is Max's next favorite generation. too. So I feel like I need to start after I'm done with pose. Maybe I'll sit down and start like binging Star Trek or something. Might I also recommend Battlestar Galactica. Amazing. Okay. I love Battlestar Galactica. And we I think it's on Amazon. We real nerdy here. I see you. <laughs> uh, okay. So let's get into the episode today. So July is Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. And so we knew that we wanted to do something in that realm. And since in a recent mini episode, we had discussed the trauma that is experienced by asylum seekers um, who come to the United States and particularly Trump's separation policy, which I'll be talking about a little bit more in detail today, uh, we kind of thought maybe it would be a good idea to focus this episode on the mental health of refugees and asylum seekers. Yeah, definitely, because it's such a huge part of just a person's overall health and asylum seekers, refugees, migrants, whatever, you know, category they fall under, they are heavily ignored when uh, trying to enter into another country, specifically the U.S. and Europe is what I have my notes on. Um, Yes, me too. I just wanted to actually start out by saying, uh, kind of talking about the differences between refugees, asylum seekers, and internationally displaced people, because I didn't know the differences between those three categories. So a refugee is someone who has a well-founded fear of being persecuted in their home country due to race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion, and is unable to or unwilling to return home because of this fear. So the when the definition of the word refugee was at its infancy, it applied to Europeans and it did not cover anyone who fled a war zone. So it wasn't until later that we started referring to refugees as people who were fleeing from war zones. And that kind of protection didn't actually come until much later. Um, asylum seekers are people who have experienced persecution in their country and crossed borders to seek sanctuary. And the only difference between an asylum seeker and a refugee is the location in which they are found and when they make a request for protection, which I had no idea it was all about just location and timing of how a person enters a country. Um, And an internationally displaced person is someone who is forced to flee their country but remain within the country's borders, which I did not know. Yes. And so because there are so many refugees, asylum seekers and displaced peoples worldwide, it's an extremely broad and nuanced topic, as you can imagine. So there's there's no two situations that are the same. And just like anybody else, when we're talking about groups in relation to mental health, no two situations are the same. No, no two um, mental health situations are the yeah, same. No no two personal wow. stories are going to be the same. I totally understand what you're saying, but and I really think that at its core as, you know, complex as this is, it really just comes down to like racism, xenophobia and discrimination. Like right. no matter so, what the story is, at the root of it there's just this hatred of otherness. Right. I mean, and if we're going to talk just kind to give a baseline, yeah. right, for 
this kind of conversation in general, let's kind of broadly talk about the disparities between even in our own country, like even if we don't want to go worldwide, there is a large disparity in mental health care just amongst uh, minority groups as compared to people who are maybe in the dominant population just in general. Most racial slash ethnic minority groups overall have similar or in some cases fewer mental disorders than white people um, that we know of. But again, those stats might not be accurate because a lot of people in minority groups don't seek mental health care at the same rates as white people do. Exactly. And, And what we do have as far as stats go is that the consequences of mental illness in minorities is usually longer lasting, probably because they're not getting the same kind of care as their white counterparts. Exactly. They disproportionately bear that burden of uh, resulting mental disorders. Right. And there's also a stigma surrounding mental health issues in people of color in general. I think a white person uh, speaking out about PTSD or depression or anxiety has become much more normalized than maybe someone who's a refugee and doesn't speak the language and is just culturally different there's something about this there's a lack of um like empathy and humanization where it's almost like they just don't understand that these people feel the same way that we do and and more i mean most of these people come from low to lower middle income countries they're coming Mm -hmm. from places with war and violence many of them have lost their family members and loved ones and witnessed horrible things, many, many of them children and minors, you cannot expect them to come into a country, give them no support, and then just behave the way you expect them to behave. Because especially with children, you've literally changed their entire lives Mm -hmm. and given them nothing in return. In the United States, particularly as well, I feel like we expect people to assimilate immediately without accounting for differences in cultural, uh, uh, in culture, cultural differences. So many cultures have mental illness stigma that is great among minority populations. There's also a lack of diversity amongst mental health care providers and a lack of culturally competent providers. There's also a language barrier. There's a distrust for the healthcare system. All of these things kind of factor into why someone may not get help. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later on as yeah, well. Yeah, and I think also what you were saying about this idea of when you enter the United States that you should just kind of automatically assimilate very much relates to this American idea of like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and like making a living. And they expect you know, immigrants and new people to this country to just be able to do that. Well, if I could make a living for myself, you should be able to as well without realizing, uh, you know, the cards that are stacked against them, you know? Right. Oh, yes. Of which there are many. So before being forced to flee, many refugees experience things like imprisonment, torture, loss of property, malnutrition, physical assault, extreme fear, rape, and loss of livelihood. This information, by the way, I got from RefugeeHealthTA.org. So their flight can also, the process of fleeing can last days, it can last years. And during flight, refugees are frequently separated from family members, robbed 
robbed, forced to inflict pain or kill, witness torture or killing, and or lose close family members or friends and endure extremely harsh environmental conditions. And this isn't everyone. Again, like we said, not every situation is the same. There are some people, um, especially people who have been forcibly displaced, like as you said, within the same country, which is very often young people. Um, Those people don't always necessarily experience the same level of high violence as a lot of refugees or asylum seekers do. And so their mental health disorders um, or consequences from that might be different. But a lot of people are experiencing high, high, high trauma and then they get into our country or wherever they're going and are expected to kind of just assimilate quickly and and live their lives as if nothing's wrong. Exactly. Um, I was reading a little bit more about like the prior conditions of leaving their country and uh, the experience of traveling from, you know, your own country to a new country. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with money and resources. If you have the money and the resources to fly or go by train or maybe have family in another country, it becomes so much easier. But so many people have to travel by foot or have to travel alone. With that comes this forced isolation. And then when they get into these camps, because when you come... Well, and also like along their journey, a lot of the times when you're talking about this like forced isolation thing, uh, a lot of the times people, depending on what they are fleeing from, especially if it's war violence, they are also having to hide while they are traveling, which is another kind of like aspect of being totally, totally isolated. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then along with that isolation, people are experiencing uh, large amounts of torture. 37% of refugees in a Dutch study uh, reported incidents of torture. 37% reported being close to death. And 35% reported that a friend or family member had been killed. Uh, Also during their journeys, many refugees experience continual loss of loved ones along with challenges that go along with leaving home. And I was reading about how difficult it is, especially for children, but I would imagine for everybody, usually it's a very quick process Mm -hmm. and you are forced to leave your most valued possessions and your favorite people behind and leave. And there's something about this lack of closure, especially for children, that's really hard for them to process, which also puts you into this form of isolation and you're being and and yeah yeah so you're you're arriving in this new country and you're being sent to these detention centers which were typically in these rural areas and many of them as we should all well know by now are set up like prisons and they are treated like prisoners and they are filthy and disgusting and they stink even though like I was reading about a family that traveled uh, to Greece, they fled to Greece and talking about living in these camps that, you know, were just covered in human feces and garbage and it just reeked and the living conditions were so horrible and how ripe for disease. It just sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, I will say that researching this episode was difficult like Anthony came home I was doing some of my uh, notes getting my notes in order during my lunch break today and Anthony came home so I took a break to go talk to him and I had to kind of like spill all of this stuff out I was writing my notes about a lot of the stuff that's happening here in the United States and it was hard to look at like honestly 
you can't read these things without thinking like, oh my God, we're monsters. Like what we're doing is it's truly monstrous. The conditions that we are forcing these people to, who have already fled kind of horrifying conditions um, to live in and bring their children into, uh, it's really, really distressing. And I really think that everybody needs to take a look at this so that you can have a, a real understanding that yeah. these are human beings that we're putting into this this really kind of terrifying situation. Well, right. And then if, you know, in our country, if we look at ICE, you know, it's it's kind of almost become looked at as this like terrorist group because of these ideals that they've had. And they have these very like far right ideals like they don't it isn't in their minds to want to give a shit about these people and really I think that's a big problem I got a lot of my notes from uh like Amnesty International I actually found a lot of mm-hmm. uh, my notes from the same website that you were on and was it aacp.org is where you got it as well or is that another one no I got uh my refugeehealthta.org and then um a lot of them I know you sent me some links from psychiatry.org. Yep. I got one from a Guardian article and then phr.org. But as far as ICE goes, uh, talking about ICE, I mean, that is also such a, it's such a shitty situation because there was an article that came out a few years ago that was written by somebody who I think used to work in ICE. And unfortunately, just like with a lot of these um kind of larger systems, including the police in the United States, the people who tend to thrive in that environment are kind of the worst sorts of people. Exactly. Because people who have a lot of empathy just don't do well in that job. Right. Uh, And, you know, a lot of these people, these ICE agents who end up kind of taking this job initially, they feel trapped in this job because ICE will very often set up their stations um, in very low income areas and they pay really well. So people end up becoming ICE officers and then realize like this isn't who I want to be, but then they feel trapped. But the people who end up doing well in that job, I mean, I'm not a psychologist. It's the power hungry people, I feel like. It's 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 some of the stuff I was reading feels very psychopathic to me that you could treat people this way without any seemingly any real empathy. Oh, most definitely. Um, I was reading a lot. This was the hardest part for me. Reading about the sexual abuse of children while in ICE custody was absolutely devastating for me. And the lack of representation is absolutely disgusting. Uh, these children are just slipping through the cracks. Uh, the federal government has actually received 4,500 complaints in four years about sexual abuse in government-funded detention centers. And many of these children either entered the country alone or were taken away from their parents. So they're like yeah. completely on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this adult staff that is supposed to be like essentially like their surrogate parents, as they should be. Your staff should be you know, treating these children as if... You know, they are their caretakers. Instead, they are fondling them, kissing them, watching them shower and raping them. It's absolutely disgusting. It's abuse of power at its like ugliest, most disgusting. Right. It's form. it's going to draw those types of people. Right. If you want to take advantage of a certain group of people, uh, if you want to exercise your power over a certain group of people, you are going to seek out jobs that allow you to do that. Exactly. Uh, And unfortunately, there isn't enough vetting in place or we just don't care enough to make sure 
that these people who are doing this job want to provide any level of real care and understanding. Exactly. And if we think it's bad enough uh, for us to report a rape or a sexual assault uh, out of the... It's impossible. It's impossible. Out of the 4,500 reports that the federal government received, just over a little... just over a little 1,300 of those were referred to the Justice Department. That is a very, very small number. And 178 of those were accusations of staff abusing minors. There were actually a lot of other accusations of minors abusing other minors, which to me is uh, extreme negligence of the staff as well, because if anybody's read Lord of the Flies, it's not going to be a good situation. Right. Well, and as we know as well, whenever children experience trauma, Mm -hmm. um, they are more likely to become aggressive, sometimes sexually aggressive. And again, if they're not getting the kind of care that they need and then they're being thrown into an environment where they're with a lot of other children completely unsupervised, it's not surprising that these kinds of things would happen. It's not. It's not surprising at all. I read somewhere that said these children learn that the world is an unsafe place and people are not to be trusted. Through this process of relocating from their country to this other awful place escaping one horror to another just in the hopes of one day finding a better life and having a better chance in that process they are learning to distrust everybody and I think that even includes their peers and especially you know in talking about aggression um, you know displacement can actually change the way a growing child's brain is forming it can actually change the physical structure of their brain and that can lead to lifelong problems like this aggression as can a lot of these kids also end up having attachment disorders which can happen you know people always like to say the the little bit from that one scientific study that happened years and years ago that a baby can actually die if it's not being held or touched enough which is why whenever you go um, you know you volunteer whenever I was in Romania we volunteered at orphanages just to hold the babies um, because that kind of physical touch is super super important and so these children um, are being torn away from their parents Mm -hmm. again I'll I'll go into that a little bit more here in a moment but these children are being ripped away from their parents. There really is no other way to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of being left to their own devices. There aren't enough people there to make sure that all of these children right. are getting the kind of care and contact that they need, exactly. which can then result in attachment disorders. If you've ever seen the documentary um, Child of Rage, Child of Rage is a walk, very... Didn't we watch that together like forever ago? It's the little we, girl we might have. who says that yes. she wants to kill her parents. Right. She's She's got an attachment disorder. Right. Um, she ended up kind of coming out of that in later life. But because she had a very traumatic childhood that was full of a not enough um, physical attention and then too much physical attention in that she was sexually abused on top of that, that manifested in this kind of um, psychopathy. Like she was a psychopath is basically what they said. Exactly. She's like a seven-year-old well, psychopath. And the reason for that is because children internalize their trauma where, you know, Keegan and I, we have our like 10 minutes of chatting where we externalize the things that we 
that we're keeping inside. You know, we have a moment to check in and feel better. We have a clean slate before we can record, but children don't have the language, nor do they even have the mental capacity at times because we're even talking about like newborn babies, how much this can affect affect them. You know, being taken away from a caretaker is absolutely traumatic. And most of the time it's chronic. It doesn't go away. Um, And I was reading about the attachment theory, especially with um, like a mother and their child and about how that can especially lead to aggression, which I don't really know how much of that I believe. There's lots of stuff in psychology that I like half buy, half don't. Mm -hmm. Um, But this I thought was interesting. So the attachment theory is... uh, So secure attachment comes from a child's perceptions of their caregivers and their abilities to parent and their physical access, which I think is really interesting, especially... As a nanny, Um, children who are taken away from their parents develop insecure and disorganized attachment. So when you're involving, you know, if there's too many cooks in the kitchen and a couple of those cooks are being really horrible and awful to you, you're you're creating this very disorganized and insecure trust like we discussed. And it's creating a lot of um, like tension and anger within the child as well. And they're also saying that children who experience trauma early can lead to dependence on welfare, juvenile and criminal justice, and could also disrupt school and work environments. And the thing is, is that all of this is preventable. This is not the child's fault. You know, and that's what's so infuriating. Yet, you know, we bitch about having to pay, you know, taxes to help people on welfare and, you know, making our justice system and our prisons better, especially for juveniles. Like the lack of care in that is so frustrating as well because they can't help it. Yeah. And I didn't write this down, but in one of these, um, in one of these psychiatry.org studies that we were reading, they were discussing how often people who are in young people who end up in juvenile detention centers end up having mental health disorders or people who end up in prison will almost always end up having some kind of mental health trauma uh, and that people of color minorities are far more likely as we know to be to end up um, in incarceration in the United States particularly and also by comparison to white children, brown and black children are far more likely to be sent directly to a juvenile detention center rather than a mental health center uh, or some other kind of rehabilitation center. Right. So you're compounding trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. Especially, um, yeah, and I was reading a lot about the importance of adding you know, the child's culture and the person's culture into their healing because in so many countries you know, openly discussing mental health is even more stigmatized. You know, it's really not common for them to express how they're feeling. And it could be very, very scary to suddenly have to face that. So by, you know, incorporating different people's cultures and beliefs into, you know, their their care and their treatment has really been seen as being beneficial to helping people adapt to their new lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have some more notes on that a little further on, but I wanted to um, kind of quickly discuss 
the situation here in the United States. I know we talked about this on a recent mini episode, but not everybody listens to the mini episode. And since it's relevant to today's topic, I kind of wanted to go a little further in depth about that situation. So historically, the United States um, had a U.S. resettlement program, and it was one of the largest programs in the world since the 1970s. In the past decade, there were an average of 75,000 refugees admitted into the United States, but that number has gone down significantly recently, of course, (laughs) because of our uh, current administration. So now um, only, or rather in 2018, only 22,491 refugees were admitted, and it's the lowest in more than 40 years. And due to Uh, a family separation policy that was enacted in April of 2018 by the Trump administration, Um, families were separated. About 700 families were separated between October 2017 and April 2018. So there was a study by Physicians for Human Rights, PHR, and I got all of this information on phr.org. And it examined the long-term psychological effects of this separation, family separation policy. And it was found that all families seeking asylum in the U.S. that participated in this study, all of them, had already been exposed to trauma, as we said, and acts of violence in their home countries, most often from gang activity. They received death threats, physical assault, relatives killed, extortion, sexual assault, robbery, and every single parent who was in interviewed expressed fear that their child would be harmed or killed in their home country or they had already been harmed. Their children had faced severe harm um, from gangs like druggings, kidnappings, poisonings. Um, Their children would be threatened. And so they were sure all of these people, this is what was making me so sad, is that in these interviews, these parents were expressing how sure they were if they could just make it to America. They had this view of like, we just have to make it to the United States and then we'll be safe. Yep. And instead, what happened upon arrival is that immigration authorities forcibly removed their children either from their arms, literally yanked their children from their arms, or, and this is worse to me, um, they would remove the parents while the children were sleeping or they would take the children while the parents were in courtrooms or or receiving medical care. So it was literally like they would come out of the courtroom and their child would be gone. And almost all of them, or or as a child, you're waking up and your parent is gone. Um, And almost all of them reported that immigration authorities failed to provide any explanation as to why they were separated or where their family members were being sent or how they would ever be reunited. And in addition... um, They documented instances where parents were being taunted or mocked by immigration authorities when they asked about the whereabouts of their children. Can you imagine? And in addition to that, they're also being placed in extremely poor living conditions uh, on top of everything else. And when they interviewed the children, they saw that kids were exhibiting behaviors consistent with trauma. They were confused. They were upset. They were constantly worried. Mm -hmm. They were crying a lot, sleep difficulties, nightmares. The list actually goes on and on. There's an entire paragraph of Well, it sounds to me, yeah, these symptoms, a lot of them tie back to PTSD. And there is a high number of children with PTSD, which to me is ludicrous 
children who have barely started their lives should not have right. to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder for potentially and, and the generalized rest of their lives. anxiety disorder yeah, it's as just, well. It's just continual. It's going to last forever. Mm-hmm. So much so that the American Academy of Pediatrics has called Trump's zero tolerance policy child abuse. I think it 100% is. Separating children from their families is child abuse. Right. And as I said already, they concluded, this study did conclude that it is torture. Um, they looked at the rules, basically, I think it was from the EU, don't quote me on that because I didn't write it down, but they basically said by these rules, by international law, what he is doing or what he did do by separating these families, it was psychological torture. Yeah, um, I was reading in an article that children from the Holocaust who were surveyed for similar things, talking about being displaced and separated from their parents, say that to this day, they still suffered from the trauma of being separated from their parents and their families. There is something that I think is just so deep-rooted in that unknowing of what's happening to your support as a child, and then as a parent, not knowing what's happening to the one thing that you're supposed to protect the most. I can just right, imagine how knowing, horrible you must feel. Right. And not knowing if you will ever see them again. Because I think that there's a, a, it's still horrible, awful psychological warfare to have your child stripped away from you at all yeah. um, without your consent. But to not know, I feel like it's so compounded when you don't know where they are or if you will ever see them again. I think that you don't get to say goodbye. They literally stole your children and there was no reunification um, plan. No, there's nothing written down. There's no filing. It's just, it's pure, it's pure hatred and evil, really. It, to me, it just seems like a sick game to the people well, that work there. You know, it's yeah, just, it's completely disgusting what you were talking about. These secret sneaky ways of stealing these children away is just absolutely them. like that is absolute torture. Yeah. The, the, I'm reading a book right now um, called uh, a man's search for meaning. And it's by a man named Victor Frankel. And he is a psychologist. Isn't that the best sur- book ever? It's, it's so good. I think I've read it's it so good already. It's so good. It's amazing, but he's a psychologist who um, survived the Nazi death camps, Mm -hmm. and he basically developed a new form of therapy around how he managed to survive. And the when I read about the ICE agents mocking these people who are asking for their children, it really felt very much to me very similar to what the Nazis did. It It really did, because I just feel like you have to dehumanize these people to such a degree to be able to do that. You have to be lacking empathy. I don't know how... There are certain things across cultures that are universal, and I feel like parenthood, motherhood, fatherhood, our love for our children, I feel like that is a universal truth that just everybody should be able to relate to and understand. Right, but unfortunately, when somebody's child looks different than you do or looks different than your child, it's a very different story. Then I feel like you have to be a monster. You are. I really do. You are 100% a monster. because I couldn't look at any child and feel that way. Yeah, I was reading... um, Trayvon Martin's mother's chapters in um, 
the book Rest in Power, and she was talking about how lucky she felt that she had an all-female jury and a lot of them had children because she figured that even though they were five white women and one you know, woman of color, she believed that all of them would relate to her as being a mother. And that was something that was really hard for her to handle. And she actually does a lot of work with mothers who have also experienced um, gun violence with their children. And that was a big thing for her. And I think that's such a shocking thing because especially, you know, mothers always talk about this intuition and this sisterhood and yada, 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 yada. But the second that the child looks different, there is this switch in so many people's heads where it doesn't become a true child anymore because they don't look the same as yours. You can't love it the same, you know? That's wild it's to me. I don't wild. I don't understand that at all. I really yeah. don't understand that. And yeah, I've I don't seen it usually over and over pull. again. Why do you have to I, why why do we need those commercials growing up with like the horribly sad music and the black and white footage of starving children in other countries. Why do we need that to give a shit? Right. Why do you have to see it to care? Yeah. And I don't usually pull the like multiracial my family looks like a Benetton ad or whatever um, card on this show but I mean truly like I have family members who are Native American I have family members who are white I've got family members who are Mexican and black and I have held all of their children and all of their children are precious Mm -hmm. children I mean they're the same they're all the same same. like children are the same you know what I mean they're all so I don't innocent and pure and wonderful and don't deserve anything bad understand at all how you could look at a baby and see anything other than a baby or look at a mother's pain and see anything other than a mother's pain exactly and I feel like once that happens to you to kind of pull us back on to to mental health I feel like once that happens to you if you are ever allowed to then enter the country in any real way, how do you trust people in authority right. ever again? Well, how do you trust them? Like if your child needs help, how do you trust a, a psychologist? Like yeah. how do you trust a therapist? How do you go to a doctor and not feel like something bad is going to happen to my child? Exactly. Like I wouldn't ever be able to trust anyone enough to get mental health care after that exactly and that goes all the way back to the first second that they enter our country they should be given the love support and resources that they deserve so that they can make a peaceful and happy transition into a better life i mean we we used to pride ourselves in you know ellis island the place where all these great different European people came over and started this country and we're a country of immigrants and yada, yada, yada. And then the second that like these people legitimately need our help, just like they did back then, you're changing these laws suddenly, which makes it well, you weaponized that, to come to this yeah, country. You heard Trump's, um, somebody in Trump's administration say that the, poem that's you know that is often quoted when immigrants come to this country bring me your your poor your you know weary etc etc that he said oh we were talking about Europeans yep that was written about Europeans we weren't talking about people from Central South America and they weren't Um, and that's the thing that's fucked up is that like at the time it was wanting to help 
other European nations and welcome them here uh, because they had typically they had something in common being the color of their skin, wanting power, different things like that. Um, monetary gain where people from other countries who hear about this wonderful United States of America and want to come here for better lives are not treated. Oh, hello, Keegan. Hello, hello. So we are giving a break toward the end of this episode to inform you all that we had some issues in editing. Something happened with my microphone where it just didn't record the last 20 minutes of the episode and we were having some issues with my microphone to begin with. So I guess it was to be expected. Um, So unfortunately, we really don't have the last 20 minutes, but I figured that Keegan and I could still get together and kind of close up this episode in a better way than just giving you a partially finished episode. Yeah, totally. So I don't know exactly where we were um, at the end of our last episode because we recorded that on Friday and now it is Monday night. I I do know that we were talking a lot about um, the last thing that I was speaking about really was this idea of America having prided itself in taking in refugees and asylum seekers throughout history and being the heroes and now shying away from these people who need our help and kind of the discrepancies between that. Yeah, I don't know if America ever took pride necessarily in taking in refugees and asylum seekers as much as it took pride in this idea that anybody from anywhere could come to this country and partake in the American dream. But I always do feel like there was a certain amount of subtext underneath that that was like, you know, an asterisk next to it that said, but you have to do it this way. You have to do it the right way. Um, And I think something that people get confused between asylum seekers and refugees, I feel like everyone thinks about refugees as being the same thing as asylum seekers, and they're not, as we've discussed on this episode. Refugees don't get to choose where they go. The United Nations decides that, um, and they have so many checks and balances on their way into this country. They go through eight U.S. federal agencies, six security database biometric security checks, three in-person interviews with the Department of Homeland Security, and medical checks that are involved in a very thorough screening for refugees, which can take a couple of years. So, yeah, there's a really long waiting game, which is really frustrating because once they get to this country, you know, it's not like the process moves quickly. There are so many checks and screenings they have to go through. And I think that there's such a lack of because there's such a lack of acceptance for new people coming into the country I highly doubt these things move very quickly either and while they're waiting they're in these horrible horrible conditions right and I I think that people get it mixed up I mean we hear a lot of rhetoric especially during the Trump administration especially from the right talking about people coming in from other countries refugees coming in from other countries they're going to come in they're going to commit crimes Um, And all of those things. But in reality, when we're talking about refugees in particular, these people go through more checks and screenings than any average American ever has to go through. So really, the average American is far more likely to commit a crime 
uh, especially a violent crime in this country than somebody who is a refugee or an asylum seeker. And isn't that so upsetting that the time that is spent with these people is to simply, which I understand you do have to go through a process to make sure you know who is coming into the country and things like that, but there's so much time and effort put into whether or not these people are safe to come into our country, like physically or whatever, and not enough time put into how how they're doing mentally. How are they preparing to come into the country? Mm-hmm. I think there's something... I mean, that re- it reminds me a lot of like the prison system too, just like there's not enough preparedness with people who, who are coming into a new environment in our country and there's not enough welcomeness and understanding. And, you know, we I believe we discussed it earlier in the episode and I believe we discussed it later in the episode about the importance of adding cultural aspects to the care um, to also right. ensure that not only are they, you know, on paper good to go into the country, but also your mental health is so important, especially when we're talking about, you know, children and aggression and things like that. You have to take care of the whole person, not just right. one part and of them. What I would say is when we're talking about, you know, you made the parallels between people who are incarcerated and refugees and asylum seekers not receiving the right amount of care, I think that there is this notion, and I don't think that anyone would admit to this, but I think that there is this notion that they are somehow less worthy. They're less alive is what they say oftentimes in like true crime circles, you know, um, less dead rather like than anyone else. So I feel like we have this expectation um, that they should just be grateful Right. right. Like you should just be grateful to be here. Um, and I think oftentimes maybe they also feel that expectation on themselves that like Definitely. I came from a really difficult place, a really difficult background, uh, and I should just be happy to be in a relatively safe environment now. And I shouldn't be depressed or I shouldn't be anxious right. or well, I shouldn't have these issues. Yeah. And another thing is that I feel like depending on where the refugees are coming from what countries they're coming from. There is a lot of stigma already in other countries surrounding mental health. And then also coming into another country, you don't want that to be on your record. You know, you don't want it to say that you had PTSD or that you've had suicidal thoughts or that you have depression because you want to make sure that you have the best prospects out there for housing and jobs to take care of your family. And I feel like, you know, it's either like it doesn't even occur to them that there's something bigger going on that they're struggling with, or they're not wanting to admit it because they have to remain strong. They have to literally, you know, this phrase that annoys me that Americans always use is pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get working. Yes. You know, absolutely. I mean, the psychiatry.org website actually mentioned that specifically is that a lot of people who come into this country from other places, refugees, asylum seekers, et cetera, they fear that their job opportunities might be limited uh, if they are perceived as having any kind of mouth, uh, sorry, any kind of mental health defect or issue. Um, and they're afraid that a diagnosis will interfere with jobs and housing. Uh, and there's also just a huge lack, as we've talked about 
you know, throughout this episode, the lack of family support is huge. And also just the lack of cultural familiarity. There aren't enough people working in the mental health field. The mental health field is largely very, very white. It's very white. People who are working in that field are very white. Um, And so there's a lot of language barriers and cultural differences that make adapting to a new life um, in a new, unfamiliar country very isolating and difficult. And it doesn't seem like an easy path. Like for me, I'm a 30 year old woman who's lived in the United States my entire life and finding access to medical care or figuring out those pathways are still super difficult and tricky for me. I can't imagine like if I was, you know, poverty stricken, I didn't speak the language. I had no support system. It would just be easier to not. Yeah, it would be. And that's the thing is that, you know, I read, you know, I read a really great list of things that would be kind of like in, in an ideal world. What would it look like? And God, I, I think I've said this before in the episode, but I usually put my my references as I go in my notes. So I can't remember where I got this from, but they were talking about uh, the clinicians serving as advocates, linking refugees with housing, legal aid, access to health care, education and employment, because, you know, we think about you know, these doctors, they really need to be people who are specialized in placing people in unfamiliar situations that are able to help guide them to, you know, reach other resources, which will then branch out into other things as well. But the thing is, is that at this point, only 3% of refugees are referred to mental health services after screening. Which is an appalling statistic. It like is that is disgusting. an incredibly upsetting percentage. Given everything that I know we have covered in this episode, again, it's not fresh in my mind, but I know that we have talked very in depth about the trauma that is oftentimes associated with either the journey into a new country or what was experienced previously or having been in in a war zone or any of those things. It is almost impossible to get out of things like that without suffering some kind of psychological issue. So for only 3% of people to be receiving the kind of help and support that they need um, or being assessed to need that support is really shocking. And the only thing, one of the things that I can think of is I imagine that these people um, who are making these assessments are probably way overworked. It's probably very similar to social workers uh, where it's not as though they are trying to do something wrong. It's just that they have a caseload that is just too much. They're taking on too many people. Well, and they, right. That's the know. thing is that it's not about the individuals and their jobs because there's some, there's many people that work as hard as they can, but if they don't have the resources for it, they are unable to do their jobs the way that they right. want to. So mm-hmm. it's then our responsibility as voters, it's our government's responsibility to... Find a way to make that work, to find people that will be able to help. I don't have the answers to that. I don't know these people. I expect people who do know these things to want to help because really we should be getting 100% of refugees through some sort of mental health exam. Mm-hmm, and absolutely. Then, and they say that another really important step is clinicians who know the difference between a normal response 
to an abnormal situation and mm-hmm. an abnormal response to an abnormal situation because many right. of these people have very normal responses to trauma that can be worked through. And then there are some that, you know, might be having more of a difficult time. It's important to know the levels of that and the levels of care. So at least to have some sort of assessment is so important and if there I I've got to do some research because if there's anything out there that has to do with government spending I would be happy oh. to have it go toward this and I'm absolutely certain that there is not enough money being allocated to these kinds of things because we don't prioritize it. Well, right. We don't look, prioritize mental health in general in well, this country, period. Right. And then we certainly don't, not for people who aren't quote unquote Americans. Right. You we, know, I was going to say in general, we treat refugees and asylum seekers like shit. Like if you remember when we first started putting everybody in cages and those photos are going viral of just like the aluminum foil looking blankets all over the floor and these just concrete buildings with fences, it's it's very clear that it's not just the mental health that they don't care about. It's the physical well-being of these people and their families. And since physical health has always been put as a higher level of importance for humans than mental health, of course they're not going to be considering their feelings you know what I mean? Right. Like for mm-hmm. people, I feel like higher up, it's like, oh, well, they're they're feeling rough. Well, we we feel rough. You know what I mean? Like there's just such a lack of empathy and understanding for like what goes into traveling here, you know? Such a lack of empathy and compassion. And I also think that most Americans, again, sorry that this is so US centric. We're two Americans having this conversation. Um, but I I feel like Americans just have a really hard time turning and facing the hard stuff, right? Because if they read the things that we read in order to prep for this episode, I think most average, empathetic, compassionate Americans would have a emotional response Mm -hmm. to seeing or reading the things that we saw and read. But I think very often Americans especially have a tendency to turn a blind eye to anything that makes us look bad, that makes us look like the bad guys, that makes us look like villains. Um, We really have to have that come to Jesus, like, are we the baddies moment, (laughs) you know, which we tend to not do because we have been fed a pretty steady diet until very recently um, of Americans being good guys of coming in and saving the day and be lending a hand to the poor and helping people achieve the American dream. And we're a melting pot and et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? Um, and so I don't think people really want to take a look at how truly horrifying a lot of these situations that these people find themselves actually is. Right. Exactly. Well, I think we need to wrap up at this moment. Um, what what I will say is, you know, one last thing is I will say that mental health, and I posted something to our Instagram today, actually our stories, but mental health 
is more than just how you feel. It's more than just where your mind is at. There are so many um, contributing factors. It's more than just a chemical imbalance. Like, yes, that's something that we talk about very often um, is, you know, actual chemical imbalances that need to be worked out through medication and things like that. Um, And that's completely valid. But there are other factors that contribute to your mental health. We discussed trauma, but also poverty, income inequality, um, housing insecurity. These things do directly impact your mental health negatively. So what I will say is look for some resources where you can maybe, if you have extra money, financially support um, these communities because, or individuals even, because that will help ease some of their stress, uh, which will do wonders for their mental health as well. So look for things like that. I know it feels daunting, like there's not a lot we can do, but there are petitions you can sign. You can call your representatives. You can be really educated before you go and vote. Uh, Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like the most important thing, especially leading up to November, is that we vote. So if there's, you know, if this episode is something that can give you a springboard to get more information, especially um, in what's going on in if you're an American in your state government and Uh, be knowledgeable for how you want to vote and what's going on in your country because sometimes just having the knowledge is power and then a moment will arise when you're able to use that knowledge in a way that's able to make a difference. So Mm -hmm. this can be something for you just to have in your back pocket and to be able to constantly remind yourselves and others, especially coming up to this election, why it's so important to get Trump out of office yeah, have this absolutely. be that moment for you, you know. So, all right, you guys, as always, feel free to email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can go ahead and direct message us and follow us in, on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist. We have a Twitter at yamp podcast, y a n f podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page, and you can chat with the other listeners on the group page. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it and you will be featured on Reviews Day Tuesday. Last but not least, if you don't already, please go listen to us on Radio Public. It is a free way for you to listen and it helps us out just a little bit. Oh, thank you for sticking with us during this episode, everybody. <laughs> uh, with- shit happens. Listen. Shit fucking happens, everybody. We are only human. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage, to rage on. on. Bye. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.